at Holycode, we get a lot of requests for people saying, I want to build this MVP and it's going to cost 40K. And we're like, okay, take, take away two zeros. Can you do it for 400? Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Laurent, Aurora, welcome back to the second episode. It's great to see you again. Thanks for having me again. Today, we're going to talk about how to master product development as a startup. So probably as an introduction, you do have a long experience in developing great products. And first of all, do you think that the stereotype that the Europeans take way too long to actually launch their products is accurate? <laughs> what a nice introduction. <laughs> um I cannot speak for all our Europeans, obviously, but I think when we talk about Swiss, yes. Why in, in Switzerland? We have a tendency to really value quality. And by valuing quality, you want to make sure that it's really working, high standard, etc. And that's too long to wait with, this, uh, with a prototype. So we are really product focused, but then we usually are not that good in, in, in sales and marketing. Is that also your experience? Yeah, I mean, uh, if you look at, that's the, the, the Swiss way of looking at it. But when you see how Germans speak, like the way that they can express themselves, they're just so much better salesperson on average than I would say we are in Switzerland. Um, and then when you look at the Anglo-Saxon um, countries like UK, US, they're even crazier. So I think yeah. that's the two parts, right? One part is they're super good at sales and they're not afraid to go and sell something that might not be really perfect yet. Yeah. Um, and then they also launch something that is not perfect yet. Whereas in the tendency in Switzerland, I think we do the opposite. But I do see that it's getting much better. Nice. So when it actually comes to product development, do you have a specific framework that you follow and, and apply? Well, it depends a bit on the stage of the product, right? Mm -hmm. So in the beginning, obviously, before you start developing, I think you should do a business canvas. Um, you should think about um, uh, how a prototype could look like. Probably just do a UX prototype that is clickable, yep. um, that you look through, and then only start really working on the prototype. And what, what I usually advise startups to do is figure out the smallest possible version of it that is um, maybe done in two or three weeks and you can throw it out the window in three months um, even if it works because you need to build it better. So this, the framework for that would be the lean startup. Absolutely. Often people mistake that a bit and say, if I want to build an MVP, the, really the, the smallest version of the product or the service that can actually survive out there to a certain degree, that they also have to build a crappy version. Of course, it's probably not the most beautiful one, but you should still have some quality in there. So how do you actually balance speed and also the agility to move out, learn and adapt with the quality to still be able to gather the relevant feedback? Make it look nice. That's simple, right? Yeah. So the customer should, the front end, the thing that he sees when he goes to the website or the app or whatever, make it look nice. It doesn't need to be perfect, but make it look nice because then the client doesn't know whether this is a super good product or not. But whatever you do in the back, that's where you can really save a lot of time. Rather than building a, a crazy architecture in a super database and whatever, just start with a list, a spreadsheet where all the clients come in and then you, right. you call them up manually and these sort of things, right? Yeah. Um, because that saves you a ton of time and you would invest too early in an architecture because you don't 
yet know whether your product is working. So you haven't validated whether you're building the right architecture for the product. So you're just going to run in circles like that. Exactly. Do you have an example of how you did that with Movo and how you validated the idea right there? Sure. We just had a landing page where you could put in um, your email address, your phone number, your name and your street, I think. Mm -hmm. And that ended up in, an, in a spreadsheet. And then nice. I just got a message and I just called up the people from my phone. Um, and yeah, basically pretended Amazing. like this is a super good service, et cetera. Yep. Um, and that's how we did it for the first 200 users. And then we just, we, we called the customers, got a bit more information. I wrote that down in a nice paper. I sent it via email to companies that then sent me the offer. I sent it back via email to the customer. <laughs> I mean, that's, a, that's really a stupid process, so to say. But it, yeah. it helped us validate within a week whether this business model could work. Yeah. Cool. And do you have any favorite tools that you should use for that validation? So like to build the landing page, should you also work with designers to make it look very nice? Or what would you recommend there in terms of tool and people setup? That really depends on what kind of personality you are and what skill set you bring, right? So for example, I'm really bad at design. <laughs> um, I did help design the first page and it looked crappy. Mm -hmm. um, but I had a co-founder that was technical. So for me, that was really easy. But if you're not, um, I don't think that the right thing is to go to a, to a development agency and build an MVP with them because they want right. to sell a bigger service, right? So just go to to one of the gig um, sites where you can have a freelancer that just designs something really nice um, for a few hundred bucks and just use that for the start, right? Try to be as, as fast and as low cost as possible. But without uh, neglecting the quality of the service, that should always be... Uh, upfront. So everything that you can do in the back, that's where you can hack and save time. Yep. But the customer experience itself should probably be as close to the the, the relevant, the, the real one as possible, I imagine. Yeah, I think that's important. But on the other side, you should not overestimate that in the beginning because, yep. you know, the first people that you're looking for will anyway be early adopters, right? So if, let's yep. say you have a hundred customers um, and from those hundred customers, 20 will probably like the fact that you're saying you're a startup and you're trying this out. And so they're willing to yeah. go with you. The other 80, they just, they're like, that's super unprofessional. Two years from now, when your site is really up and running, from those 80, probably 40 will like you because now it's working. Don't focus on these guys because yeah. it's too early. Focus on the 20 um, guys that that want to be on this journey with you. Like, oh, that's exciting. You're building a new product. Can I, can I help you with feedback, blah, 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 and use that positive energy. So yes, it's important, as we said, that it looks nice, but try also there not to overdo it. Be courageous and, and keep it to a minimum. Nice. Something that we also often hear from our podcast guests is that when you start out, you, sh you should actually solve your own problem and then build a product around that. We heard the story with you in the first episode where you actually had the problem with your parents moving. So that certainly applied to you. But is that a, you know, is that a requirement from your perspective? Solving a problem, yes. It doesn't have to be your own problem, but mm -hmm. always start from a problem. If you start from a solution, I mean, that's what happens a lot, right? Um, you come up with a, with a solution where you think like, oh, that's so crazy. I can, I can, I don't know, I can, let's say something really stupid i can i can connect 17 bluetooth headsets with each other because i have this great technology yeah but it's yeah. not a problem nobody probably well maybe somebody wants but probably nobody right. wants to, that problem solved or not enough yeah. people so that you can scale it um so you need so you should not take a solution and start looking for the problem yeah. you need to find a problem where people really are going to be willing to spend money or spend time or whatever to get it solved and, and go from there yeah. Sure, better if you um, if you have experienced it yourself, the problem. But if not, it's also great if somebody else has experienced it. Yeah. 
but the message is clear. Focus on the problems, not on the product or the idea. Yes. And the lean startup, for example, that, that process that really focuses on that, go to the problem. From your experience, when we talk about MVPs that you mentioned before, what are some mistakes or misconceptions that people have uh, about them? Yeah, you already said one. Uh, um, an MVP does not necessarily need to be crappy. So it can be crappy if, yep. if it helps, but it should not be crappy just to, um, to yeah, to, yeah, to look an like MVP. an MVP. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and on the other side, um, the other extreme that most people still do is you're thinking too big. Just an MVP that costs you 40K. I see that a lot. You know, at Holy Code, we get a lot of requests from people saying, I want to build this MVP and it's going to cost 40K. And I'm like, it's crazy. Okay, take, take away two zeros. Can you do it for 400? And yeah. if you think about it, probably you won't be able to do it for 400, but maybe you can do it for 2,000. Right. And it's okay for the next two months. But that's all you need because you haven't validated the idea yet, right? So yeah. those are, it's always the fear of, of being ashamed of what you put out. It's still yeah. the main problem. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really also our Swiss mentality. Probably, yeah. It's, yeah. I think, 100% in our DNA to a certain degree. Yeah. Is there anything else that you would like to add to the MVP part? Because I also have a lot of questions of regarding the, the scaling and, and, and the growth phase of the product and how to handle that. But maybe you have some additional thoughts on the MVP and the early phase. Yeah, there's two hypotheses that you need to prove. And that's also from the Lean Startup. And I think it's just, it's, it is what it is. Um, it's the value hypothesis and it's a growth hypothesis, right? So the value hypothesis is what you need to do in the beginning. Are people willing to spend money, spend time, interact with your tool? Yeah. That's the MVP phase. And that's something you, you can do super, 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 super simple. So really think about that. What's the value that you want to bring to people? Mm -hmm. Figure out what's the least possible solution that you can think of to test it and then always go back to testing 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 so it's always a hypothesis and the test hypothesis and the test that's yeah. that's it i think there's there's not much more magic to it it's a simple project a product if you do it right and then the growth phase that's what you're saying the growth hypothesis that's where it becomes really interesting just uh quickly you know building the bridge again to move what was your the, the, the first hypothesis there that you wanted to validate to how do be people bring you cash? So the first hypothesis was it's probably possible to have people book moving services online without ever having to let people into your house. That was the per first hypothesis, right? Yeah. Um, and the way we went about solving that was set up a landing page where we said um, you get five offers digitally, no home visit. Mm -hmm. And people just left their email, their phone number, and their address, which I already felt like, how Amazing. would you do that with just the landing page? I mean, I don't trust these people. But sure. there were enough people that were willing to do that. And I think we spent a few hundred bucks on Google ads to get the people on that page, yeah. right? So it was a super easy, super fast way um, of testing it and to collect a lot of feedback because we called up every single yeah, person. So yeah. Yeah. Did, did you have a, a certain number that you said that's our goal within a week or within a month that you wanted to hit? A hundred. I mean, it's not even a hundred is not statistically relevant, really, sure. right? But um, we felt like it's it's close enough and big enough that that you could really see, really say, probably we've seen all the shades of it now. Um, so that's why. And we also made sure that 
we had several from us calling the clients so that my own biases and the way I would ask questions are not then reflected over the hundred clients. So we really made sure that different people are talking to the people so that we get different viewpoints and different ways of listening to customers and, and seeing what they're saying. Nice. Yeah. Otherwise, if you're too naive or too optimistic, you might have a, sort of a blurred image of the world, right? <laughs> you know me. <laughs> so... Now let's also talk about the, the growth, the scaling phase. So you basically figure out the MVP, you built your first product, you have your first users, but now of course you need to further improve and develop your product. So what changes from MVP to the growth stage? You've proven that people are interested. And now it's about making sure that you can add a lot of customers at a customer acquisition cost, say I'd say, mm -hmm. um, that is feasible for you that are willing to spend enough money or spend enough time um, so that this adds up um, uh, from a business plan perspective, right? So for example, today you would say a company that doesn't have it, say I'd say it's a customer lifetime value. Um, so the cost that you pay for a customer to the lifetime value of at least three to one, uh, one to three, um, right. doesn't make sense anymore, right? Um, and those sort of things you really need to be aware of. You can have a really great product after the MVP phase, so you have the value, mm -hmm. but it's not scalable because you're not finding the right channel to get to a thousand new customers a week or a month or a year, depending on, on how much yeah. money you're going to make with each one of them. So that's really, really important that you are aware of this is the stage where marketing, where sales, mm -hmm. where process optimization starts becoming super important. And that's interesting because, you know, from the product development part, you would then also think, hey, this is actually not the marketing or sales game, but that's actually super important along the process here. That's the main thing. And I think that's why still to this day, American companies, German companies, they're outrunning a lot of other companies because that's where, as you said before, they're super strong. Yeah. They can just sell stuff that, I mean, yeah, as you know the saying, they would probably sell ice cubes uh, to uh, Inuit. So, <laughs> yeah. Exactly, fair point. And, you know, there are also a lot of different product development or project management frameworks. So, you know, I think two of the most common ones are Scrum and Kanban. So when you then actually, you know, also hire more people to work on the product, to develop it, do you have any preference? What's the, the right fit for a, a growing startup? Should it go towards the Scrum or the Kanban world? If you need really creative solutions, stick to Kanban. If you need stuff to be done in a good quality and fast, Scrum. That's a very clear take. Can you elaborate a bit more on those two choices? Sure. I mean, Kanban is all about making sure that that you don't have more than, let's say, one or two tasks um, in each phase of the process, right? So you're working on one. Um, you maybe have one that you're um, QAing right now, so testing, yep. and uh, one that maybe someone else is looking at, and that's it. So you're trying to keep the, the, that flow really streamlined so that you're focused on what you're doing and you're trying to do it as fast as possible. Right. But it's, in my opinion, and other people might see it differently, but in my opinion, it's mainly about keeping focus. Mm -hmm. That's why um, I think it's perfect for creative work. So if, can I come up with an easy example? If you need to come up with a new marketing page mm -hmm. um, and you start, start off from nothing, a, it's really hard to say how much time it's going to take you, how much effort it's going to build it. So how are you going to put scrum points to that, for example, right? So that's when Kanban is the right thing because it's up to you to figure out what's the right time, how long you need, but you're only doing this yeah. and then you move it on. On the other side, scrum is all about getting alignment before you start the work. So 
you sit in a in a refinement meeting with the whole development team and probably product, um, and you talk about how complex is this topic, how long will it take you or me to solve it, and then you add complexity points, and then you say within two weeks or one week, um, that's the amount of complexity points we can do. You bargain around that, you bargain around it, and then you yeah. see how how much you can do, and you try to really optimize that. But that's only possible if you know the scope really well, right? So creative right. work doesn't really fit there. No. That's why I say this is uh, the easiest way to look at it. How do you work today at Bexio, for example? Do you say that with like the marketing team, you work in a Kanban setup and with, with the product development or the dev team, you work in a in a Scrum setup or how do you do that? That's exactly how it is. <laughs> nice. So the, the development team really works in Scrum. Um, we've had a phase now where they were not. They were working in a triage mode for technical reasons. Doesn't make much sense to go into that. Um, if you get to that point, you were really successful. <laughs> um, but you also made some mistakes along the line. Um, but Scrum, I think, really is the go-to model for me still um, for development tasks. But everything that is marketing, that is UX, that is product-related work, that is, um, yeah, these sort of tasks, I think you just, Kanban is, is fitting so much better. Do you use any tools uh, along the way for both setups? Yeah, sure. For um, for Scrum, we use Jira. Actually, now we also use Jira for Kanban, but you, we used to use Trello a lot. It's the, right. yeah, the cheapest yeah. version, right? And they got acquired by Atlassian, so yes, it's... So it kind of makes sense. Um, but those are easy tools that you can use um, for, for it. You can also do it with... In the beginning, if you're in the same office, you can also just put it on a wall, right? Sure. And, and, and do it like that. Um, but uh, yeah, it helps in this remote era. Corona, thank you, exactly. um, to, to do it like that. So um, let's also talk about then you're growing your team. So initially you have your first development team, but then you also usually grow the teams and you probably need different functions. You need different, you know, setups of the teams. How, how does the growth change the setup and, and the split of the development team? I think it's super, super, super important for every part of the company, not just product development, to have very clear roles and responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And that's something I learned the hard way because we had it too too late. Yeah. For example, Nenad, my co-founder and CTO, had, and he was responsible for product and development for a long time. And we didn't define what that really means, but actually I was doing a lot of the product part and sort of interfering with his work um, and he would have done it in a different way. And at some point he just came to me and said, look, no, I cannot do this anymore. We need to find someone to take care of product because I'm, I'm too split focused. I'm not doing either job right. Um, you're interfering with me because we don't know who's responsible for what exactly. And we are we can work well together so it works, but this is not a setup. So we've, we set out to find a, a person that has certain responsibilities and the clear role and the clear skill set that we wanted to have for the product role. And th I think that's really when we realized you need that at each stage. If you say you want to hire someone new, think about what did that means in changes, um, in terms of changes to your role, um, what kind of role you're actually looking for, and whether you can live without that a little bit longer for cash reasons, right. um, or whether you really need it now. And if you do not do this analysis properly, you'll end up in trouble. That makes sense. So how does the ideal team setup look like when you enter the growth stage? Like, what are the key roles that you definitely need to have or should hire for if you don't have them in your team already? Well, I think we're talking now about a digital startup, right? Exactly. So to, to put it a bit um, in, a, in a smaller frame, um, everything that has to do with technology, I really think you need specialists there. Um, and I think you need them early on. Uh, and I 
believe that there really makes sense to invest a bit more cash to have very senior people that know what they're doing from the start. Everything that is more market-oriented, um, I think there you can leave um, experience a bit to the side. It's nice to have, and it's great if you can find people, but they're expensive. Um, there, I think it's more enthusiasm that that counts. Like people that really want to connect with the with the user, that really want to learn and ask the right questions and, and bring that back into the company, right? I think there it's much more a game of trial and error, um, communicating with each mm -hmm. other, figuring out what it is. I think that's super important. So if you ask me, I think you need, yeah, you probably need somebody that's great at sales. You need somebody that is super great at listening to customers and asking the right questions, these sort of things. Mm -hmm. Perfect would be if that person can also translate that into product requirements, but that's hard yeah. to find. So maybe you as a founder need to be the guy that does that and mm -hmm. translates it into product um, uh, requirements. And then you have a specialized tech team. And there I would really vote for splitting um, front-end and back-end um, roles as early as possible. Nice. Why I is that know, so important? Yeah, I know a lot of people that are saying that's not true. You should go for, for <laughs> um, full stack. But A, yeah. really hard to come by. B, you're putting a lot of domain know-how in one person's head. right? And in the early stages, it can happen that he says that's, or he, she says, this is too much for me. I don't want to be here. I have a better offer, whatever. Sure. And then your whole tech team is gone. So really try to split the roles a bit that you're not technically... Um, re, um, requiring this one person because that puts you on the back foot always. Basically building a resilient team. Yes. Absolutely. Very important and easy to forget, I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And then you also mentioned that there's the, the person that could ideally translate the customer's needs into product requirements. So that's where then basically everything comes together, right? How do you align the different teams? So is that just one person that needs to do the translations? Maybe you as founder or do you have other ways of communicating and bringing all the teams in sync? I think it's important to start with data as soon as possible, right? So you're listening to customers and you're trying to get that into product requirements. But in the end, it's always a discussion. So we will always have people that are saying, um, I see it differently. Or So then it's, it becomes a it becomes a very non-objective, subjective discussion. Um, and that's really tricky. Um, and the best way to do it is to start with data as soon as you can to really say, look, we can see clearly that on this step we have conversion drops and we can see that people always ask this question and we need to do something about that. That really helps to, to calm the discussions down. And the second thing is, and probably a lot of people will not like to hear that, I think it's super important that you make it clear um, what each person has as a role. So a lot of the times I see that CTOs or um, tech people feel like it's their call. And in my opinion, it's not. It's the call of the product guy. And if the product guy is the CEO, so be it. If the product guy is yeah. a, an intern, so be it. That's sure. his role. He decides what is being done for the client. Um, and that's something that I see a lot of time leads to problems for two reasons. One, because tech teams often think they know better, but they were not in contact with the customer. Mm -hmm. On the other side, they often also have to work on requirements that are just not done well, and that leads to a lot of frustration. Of so product and development team, those guys need to be like, I don't know, married to each other. They, yeah. they don't necessarily need to love each other all the time, but they really need to be able to figure out solutions with each other all the time. Yeah. And where does the sales and marketing team come into place in, in that setup? Before product. So, yeah. I mean, 
look at it as a constant cycle. So the feedback comes from sales and marketing and, mm -hmm. and data, and it goes through the product guy into the development. And then development does it, product guy checks it, it goes live to the customers, and then those guys, sales, marketing, yep. data, they look at it again and they bring back the feedback. And you're not done with the first iteration usually. I mean, that's just, if, you, if you're done with the first iteration, you were either super lucky or you've spent way too much time on making it perfect again, right? So <laughs> be fast, yeah. be a bit ashamed of what you're putting out and, and test it and then iterate really yeah. fast on it. So if you've put it out and you're ashamed of it, cool, then make sure that you can iterate it within two days. Then you don't need to be ashamed anymore, exactly. but you have data, right? Yeah. So I think that's super important. Yeah. I love it. It's so, so, so simple when you actually say it, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's, I think that's what I've learned over the years. I've read so many books and I've talked to so many people and with Holy Code, I think we have like 65 startups that we're working with. We've seen so many cases. Wow. In the end, it's not rocket science. Yeah. It's really having a structure, a yeah. system that works well. And there are systems like the Lean Startup, for example, and Scrum, et cetera, that work really well. Don't reinvent the wheel, but figure out which parts of it are different for your company because of your culture, because of your yeah. setup. And focus on that rather than reinventing something that just proves to be working. Absolutely. And you also talked about the importance of having data that you can actually consult and make mm -hmm. the right decisions. I think that it's it can be pretty difficult to have all the data in one place, sort of a single source of truth. Yeah. So how do you solve that? What tools do you use to actually have uh, the data to make the right decisions? And also what data do you actually look at? So yeah, that really is a tricky one because you tend to have a lot of tools in place. Exactly. I don't know, let's say you have um, Salesforce for as a CRM. No. I'm just, just saying something. Um, then you maybe have, a, for the sales, you have a pipeline tool. There's so many out there. I don't know. Let's call it Pipedrive. Um, then you have Tableau for your internal um, data that you're looking at transaction-wise and these sort of things. Mm -hmm. Maybe then you have another internal dashboard that you're looking at. Then the tech team has um, site uptimes and, and, and error messages and these things that they have in their tools. And then you have the Google Analytics and the Facebook campaigns. And there's like a ton of those. And yes, obviously, you can all integrate that maybe into Salesforce or into your own database, but you don't have the time usually. You don't have the people that have time to do that because you don't have the money for it. So you really need to be smart about which data you you look at, right? Because you can always find data that sort of supports your claim. Yeah, exactly. But then you're just, you're just trying to prove a point. Yeah. Um, and I don't have a real answer to that, to be honest. I think it's really important that before you start looking for the data, you have the right hypothesis that you say, mm -hmm. we believe that... Um, clients will drop on that step less if we do this and this change. And then you, add, you write down like, what are the things that you're going to look at to see whether it works, right? And then you go look for the data. I think that's the only advice that I can give because you usually do it the other way around. Yeah, you go, exactly. Because we're curious. We, you go look up what works and what not, and then you start saying, yeah, but you know, you want to be right. So you're going to say like, this, word, this is why it works. And, and I think that's wrong. Hypothesis, write down where to look it up, go look it up, and then you're, you're right or you're bust. Yeah, that's also how our mind works, right? So we try to come up with a good story after looking at the data, and then you try to explain it. And then, yeah. oh, yeah, it all makes sense. But you do actually have to do it the other way around, as you just yeah. suggested. And it short-term helps, helps your ego, but it harms the company. Absolutely. So what are, from your perspective, you know, some challenges of scaling your software and how do you actually also keep everything up to date? Because you mentioned it's a cycle. It's not rocket science. It sounds simple. 
but it's something that you're never done with. You know, it, it always comes back. So how do you also keep up to date with the changes of technology and the tech stack and everything else that you need to consider with your setup? We just basically said 20% of the tech team time always goes into modernization. Okay. And I think that's a super simple rule of thumb. It will lead to, to discussions, um, but I think that really helps you because that means that the tech team knows 20% of their time they can invest into looking at new tools, mm-hmm. uh, looking at parts of the system that are out of date, um, and they don't feel bad about it because you always want to put in more new stuff and, 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 and these sort of things. But if you do that, if you say 20% of your software uh, of your time always goes to modernization of the software and to looking at the new tools, that will happen automatically. And for the marketing teams, etc., they're usually people that are always looking out for the newest things. So yeah, you don't need to do much. They're, yeah. they're going to come from they it. They love that. From, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're just going to come with it. Is there also a recommendation or a good ratio of how you should actually modernize and, and probably say, hey, we've now worked with that tech stack for five years. Now it's time to do a complete rebuild or something. Or is that not necessary with the 20% setup that you just mentioned? The 20% setup should help you not having to do that. Right. Okay. Um, so what I see a lot is that then companies come and they haven't modernized at all. Yeah. Then you're sort of stuck at some point. Yeah. So there's there's several problems. One is you have people doing the tech part that do not understand enough what they're doing. Because maybe it's the first time, like you as a founder, for the first sure. time that, that don't know what they're doing. And that's that's really crucial because... You know, as a as a founder of the company, as a business person, you can make wrong calls and then you revert them quite quickly, usually. Yeah. But if you do that tech-wise, and after two years you realize, ooh, we've built the wrong tech for two years, yeah, have fun. It's going to take you around two years to undo your problem. Yeah. Um, maybe you're a bit faster. but So make sure that the tech people really know what they're doing. Have a super strong tech lead, have a super strong CTO, whatever. I think that's one of the key hires today. Um, and then you can also work with more junior people because you have one architect that really knows what he's doing. Have 20% of time focused on modernization. And please be super careful when people come and say, you need to change the tech stack. You need to work on another language. I think I have not seen a single example yet where that worked out well. Because you end up with 20% in PHP, 40% in Java, and then someone comes along and you're also, I don't know, doing Ruby. And then you have half of microservice, half of a monolith, and uh, you need three different kinds of people to run it because nobody uh, understands all three languages. That's not good. So if you have decided to go with technology and there's no red flag why you cannot keep working with that, keep sticking to that technology. Simple as that. I like that advice. I think as, as soon as somebody approaches you with that statement, all the alarms should go off and say, uh-oh, yeah. I'm in trouble. <laughs> yeah, because everybody has their own preferences. If you ask sure. uh, my, my technical people, my co-founders from the past, they all have their preferences. And over the years, they've changed because they've seen the good and the bad sides of yeah. each technology, right? And uh, Nenad, actually, my, my CTO, co-founder, and uh, yeah, co-founder at Holycode, he always says, um, I, I think he started saying that like two years ago, um, it's not the language um, that really makes the difference. It's how the people use it. Nice. That's powerful. Yeah. Now, Holy Code is actually a, a good uh, point to discuss here. We, of course, also want to talk about nearshoring. So for anyone out there listening who is not familiar with the term nearshoring, how would you explain that? It's a, it's a funny term. I mean, basically, it's um, uh, it's a bit like it's outsourcing, um, or offshoring, 
actually comes from offshoring, where you go to a very different time zone, very far away, right? And nearshoring is just, it's close to your time zone, probably the same time zone. That's why it's called nearshoring. Um, and it's basically a form of outsourcing. So what you're doing is, um, rather than having the people hired here, you hire them with another company mm. in another place, but it's still your team. Nice. You know, very often, uh, you know, when talking to investors, they don't like it too much if you, as a tech startup, outsource parts of your technical development. So they often say, you're a tech company, you need to have that capability in-house, you need to have everything here. We already discussed that you need to have everybody here in Switzerland. That's also something you probably often hear. So why can it still make sense to choose the nearshoring setup? Uh, and what would you answer these critiques? So there's a very important dis uh, distinction that we have to make here, right? Mm -hmm. So if you outsource it in a sort of project, you define the specs, you give it to an outsourcing company and they deliver it back to you. Um, I agree. If you're a tech company, in the most cases, that doesn't really add up because yeah. you don't know who worked on it. You don't know the quality that they put into. You don't have the know-how afterwards. Right. If you go to a nearshoring setup, um, it's your team. They're just staffed with another company, right? But yeah. basically, it's your team. They're your employees. They're here to work for you. The IP right belongs to you from the start. Um, so I think that's something that a lot of investors are just not that familiar with yet. The ones that are tend to really like it. Um, and as we said in, in, uh, in the other episode, I really believe that um, the statement of saying you need to have all your people here in this market, that's just yeah. antiquated. It's, it's not the reality anymore. It's a relict of the past. Yes. How would you describe the pros and cons of doing nearshoring as a startup? Pros are um, very clearly cash. So um, if you nearshore in a country that is much cheaper with good quality people, right. um, you have a much longer run rate or you can um, have more developers for the same money. Usually then I get the argument, yeah, but a great ETH uh, um, uh, programmer is worth three developers. That might be true, but let's see how many you can find of those. Yeah, good luck <laughs> uh, competing with Google and yes. everything. If you are an ETH spin-off, you sure. usually you can get them, but yeah. otherwise you just yeah, forget it, yeah. right? So yeah, that might be true, but they're also expensive. And if they leave, you have a problem because now you need to replace one guy um, with maybe three guys if you can't find it anymore. Yeah. And those three guys need to learn everything that this guy has done before. And if it wasn't well documented, you lost the know-how. Yeah. So from a risk perspective, you're much better off with having two or three people doing the same thing. Yeah. Um, and that's something that people tend to see only later on when they get these problems. Mm -hmm. um, the downsides are clear. I mean, uh, you need to do a bit of let's say translation. So if your company works in German afterwards, you might not be able to work in German anymore. So it's English. Um, you need to invest into um, remote setup. So you need to have uh, screens in the meeting room. You need to be able to talk to each other. You need to go visit each other. But I mean, today with, with Corona and everybody working sometimes remote and from yeah. home, that's just a no new normal. Yeah, the world has changed. Yes. What would he say if somebody says a disadvantage is also that you're depending on a different company, like the company that would then search your team for you in the other country, basically? True. If um, your contracts are not set up well, that's one thing. So I saw that in a lot of cases in the past where you didn't have good setups and then the team is gone in two or three months because yep. the provider earns a better margin with another partner, right? Um, exactly. So that's one of the things that I think you need to be really aware of, that you have a good contract with them yep. and you should only do it if you really trust the people. So I think Makes that's sense. one of the reasons why Holy Code, for example, works so well for us because people know that we are 
Swiss founders, two of us, uh, the third one is yeah. from Serbia, but we're Swiss founders. We have founded and sold and, and, and failed with, with our startups. Um, we know how this, how this scene works. We know the yeah. people. We are committed. So if we just pull out, people will know and it will help hurt our reputation. I think that's really important that you find the right people. Talking about skin in the game. Exactly. You are based in Serbia with Holy Code. What would you say is the most or the best fit country for doing nearshoring today? That's really dif difficult to say. I mean, I know companies that work in Portugal and it works quite well. I know mm -hmm. companies that work in Barcelona, Spain, um, that work quite well. I know companies from Ukraine, from Poland, from Romania, from Serbia. From yeah. There's so many places. I know companies from South Africa or from Vietnam. Um, I think it really depends on your culture. Um, what you're looking for, um, and then it can be very, very different. Um, I, I don't say that, I wouldn't say that there are countries that are necessarily better. There are obviously some that are worse. Um, in my opinion, countries like Hungary um, or other Eastern European countries where the, where the, the, the social situation um, with autocrats and these sort of things are difficult, I think those are maybe not the most stable places to go for. Um, but that's hard to judge. It can it can change very quickly, right? True. So, so keep an open mind and uh, analyze the situation. Yes. So before we want to wrap up the session and reach the conclusion, is there anything else you'd like to add to the terms of nearshoring or also the growth uh, phase of your product development? Focus on growth. S simply. I mean... I talk to a lot of people that after a year or two of focusing on growth, they feel like they need to do something else. If you believe your market size is still big, you have a lot of leeway ahead of you. Focus on growth. In the end, the number one in the market is the one that wins. That's just the game, right? And if you start diversifying too early, you're going to lose speed because your force is going everywhere. Right. So focus on growth. That's the only thing. And if you don't believe me, believe the Y Combinator guys that are saying you need 100% um, quarter over quarter growth to be eligible for their program. That's absurd. I don't know how many companies can even do that, but that's the sort of mindset you need to have. Yeah, it's actually interesting. There are two Swiss companies now uh, in the current batch, which yeah. is fantastic. Yeah, and one of them is actually had, had told me that. Amazing. So reaching the conclusion, if the product people listening to this episode and remember only one thing from this episode, what would you wish had stick with them? The lean startup is the way to go. Nice. And what's the number one mistake that you wish product developers would stop making? Overthink. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I think these are two good conclusions and things to take away and reflect on. The very last part that we have for you today are some rapid fire questions. So right. I either give you a choice or a quick question. You can answer in one sentence. Are you ready? <laughs> Let's see. Founding or investing? Founding. Why? Um, I think at the moment there's more than enough money. Um, so the balance is changing towards founders. Um, 10 years ago it was different, but I think now if you're the founder, you have much more power in the negotiation than you had 10 years ago. Nice. Miguel or Coop Child? Coop. Yeah, that's easy from Basel. <laughs> I was just closer. <laughs> okay, fair point. <laughs> What's the best city to live in and what's the best to work in from your perspective? I haven't been to too many places to really have an educated opinion on that, but I would say um, from the ones that I've been to, 
probably Sydney would be the one that I would like to live in. Um, nice. Uh, and the one for working is probably Zurich because you have everything. I mean, you have a great standard of living. Mountains are close. Um, yeah. And short distances, yes. which also helps. Yes. What was your summer job as a teenager? <laughs> I was teaching um, six to 14 year old Muslim boys um, uh, yeah, how to do better in school. Nice. Do you regret making an investment or regret, regret not making it? Not making it because I don't have the money. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And the last one for you, Basel or Zurich? Work-wise, Zurich. Uh, Living-wise, for me currently, for the family situation, Basel. But yeah, objectively speaking, Zurich. Nice. Laurent, thank you again very much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to talk to you. And we wish you all the best and lots of success with whatever you will tackle in the future. We're very curious to see and hear what you're cooking. Thanks a lot and thanks for having me.